for the Lord, ask him to bless our time as we look at the word. Father, we're grateful that as you've gathered us here this morning, we have this great hope that that this time, as we sing, as we confess, as we give, as we hear from your word, as we pray and and look to you, that, that, that something will happen in our lives. We've tried and we know we can't make that happen. And so we come to you and we ask that you would continue this ongoing process of transforming us in an image of your son and to give us eyes to see what you're doing and faith to believe what you desire to do and strength to obey. And so I ask, Father, as we look now at your word, that that would be a part of this means that you have granted to us to say, yes, this is true. Yes, this is real that we would continue to grow in our taste and our appreciation and our appetite for what it really means to know you this morning. We don't want just to know things about you. We want to know you and only you can truly open our minds and our hearts and our lives to, to taste you and to know you and to know that you're good. So we ask you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read a few verses there. A few weeks ago, I think back in October, November, I had a chance to preach a couple of sermons and kind of working my way through Galatians. Opportunity this week to continue. And, and um, what's interesting is, is as I'm working through this, realize there's a lot more here than, than could fit into in an hour and a half sermon today. So... Uh, Texted Bill yesterday and said, uh, can I have one more week? And uh, so he was willing to give me one more week. So we're going to look at this text, 8 through 20, part of it this week and part of it next. But the two are connected. And so uh, we're going to talk about what it means to see Christ form himself in us. This is the word of God. I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 20 in chapter 4 of Galatians. Paul writes, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no, lo- is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and have given them to me. But I have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. 
They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of that for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. When I talk about or ask the question or discuss the topic of of change, of any hope that we would have of change in our lives, how do you respond? Do you respond positively as if it's hopeful? There are times in our lives we look and we go, it seems virtually impossible that I would change at all. How is it that you respond? How do you think about this topic of really change? And of course, this time of year, the beginning of the new year, right, is the time we maybe think about that a little bit more. Or maybe when we were younger, we used to think about that more. I remember when I was younger, and now at 46, I can talk about when I was a younger man. And I would think about the new year, and as that new year rolled around, I would have this great hope and these great aspirations that something was going to change this year, that I was going to wake up and something new was going to transpire, that all of a sudden I would become the intellectual and moral and physical and spiritual giant that I always knew that I could be. And it didn't take long for reality to be smack me in the face, right? And to wake up and look in the mirror and wonder, I'm just the same. <laughs> Nothing's really changed. Is there any hope that maybe I would change? Is there any hope that maybe the man I look at in the mirror might be different one day from the next? And again, it seems like I, I wonder if that it's even possible Of course, my understanding over the course of the years of what change is and how easy or easy it is not has changed. Indeed, what does it take to see change take place in our lives, to see our our lives conformed in some way to something different and something other? And of course, in the midst of these times, there's hopeful periods and less than hopeful periods, despairing times. In my own life, I waver right from these seasons of, of, of despair, again, over the course of time to go, I can't change. Chronic temptation, sin is there, plagues me over the course of my life. I go, I'm just the same. And yet there's seasons of hopefulness that can lead me to maybe be overly realistic or overly optimistic rather about about the change that's possible and to think that somehow I'm going to wake up and there's going to be this change that's there. And so how do we navigate between these two kind of ditches, the, the despair and complacency on one side and then unrealistic optimism on the other because frankly both are detrimental to our walk with christ this despair that we can fall into to think i'll never change i'll always be the same can keep us right there can lead us into sin and the same is true this overly optimistic understanding of it can lead us down this road in the other ditch that's there and so the passage as we look at this morning i think we'll get a glimpse of this pattern for change and understand it i want us to to look at this really through a a lens of verse 19. I see that the the pattern that that Paul had as he looked at the church in Galatia, as he looked at them, his hope for them was that it would be formed in the image of Christ, that the change that would take place in them wouldn't take place necessarily from something outside in, that laws and regulations would impress upon them, but something would be formed within them something inside them that would transform them, that would, be, that would form them that way, and his hope that they would be formed. And as we today, as we deal with our own challenges, our own struggles, I want us to see through the lens of this passage the great hope that we have. 
that in our struggles of faithlessness, of unbelief, of sin, of temptation, of difficulties in life and marriage and relationships and finances and temptation that we have to want to trust and live for the things, there's hope that in and through those circumstances, God will produce and grow in us the image of his son, that these struggles are a part of that process that he will bring. And he writes to them and Paul wants him to get. And of course, the whole book is that he wants them to understand what the gospel is. And he wants them to see that this formation, this transformation, this change is connected inseparably to their understanding of the gospel. That they want to see this change take place in their lives, that they must understand the gospel of what Christ has done and what he has accomplished that they need to get a hold of that and not move away from that to laws and regulations that would impress upon them from without, but understand the gospel that changes and transform them from within. And the simple phrase I have for you this morning, simple because it's going it's to go so, this is the statement I'm going to use as a, as a theme for this week and next, is that the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. That the gospel is the power of God to, to form Christ in us. Of course, the gospel is, is much more than that as well, but the, the way that Paul distills and frames the gospel in this passage is that it is that power to form, to transform us into the very image of Christ. As we look at this passage through the lens of verse 19, we can get a glimpse of this, of Paul's part for them, the necessity of the gospel to actually transform them and change them in order for us to see and understand that. A little background, and you might have been here, if not quickly, to look back. What Paul is doing is he's come to the church as he has preached the gospel to them. They received it, the gospel of Christ alone, what Christ had done and accomplished. Others had come in, though, others who were from the Jewish history, who had become Christians and embraced the Messiah, had come back in and said, Christ is necessary, but he's not sufficient. What you have to do is add back in. Look back to the law. Look to the regulations of the law. And in so doing, you will truly find what you need. It's Christ plus these things. And, of course, what Paul wants them to get, what he wants them to understand is that the minute you begin to add anything to Christ, you undermine and nullify his work. In fact, what you're actually doing is enslaving yourselves all over again to something else. And so Paul writes to them saying, no, 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 it's not about that. Don't add anything else to Christ. What they're wanting to do is add these regulations, these rituals, circumcision being a picture of that. Paul says, no, that's not helpful. In fact, that enslaves, it undermines the gospel. And his concern, of course, is that this sense of legalism, trusting in laws apart from Christ, and what we can do, what we can manufacture, what we can accomplish apart from Christ is bad theology. And bad theology is not harmless. In fact, it's very malignant and dangerous and destructive to the Christian life, both individually and corporately. And what grows in the midst of this legalism is rotten and toxic fruit of division and dissension and envy. It grows within us and it creates competition and comparison. And it creates insecurity in our own lives of legalism because it's about what we would do, not about what Christ has done. So he writes to them to say this is dangerous, it's destructive. And so he's described what Christ has done through justification and dealing with the legal aspect of the law, fulfilling it and dealing with our sin. And he goes on to say it's not just about justification, the legal issue being addressed. That's huge. But what what God is doing ultimately is adoption. We see it fulfilled, the, the picture of God's 
desire is to make slaves, sinners into sons who are free. That adoption is the high picture that he wants us to see that God is doing. He's not just doing a legal work. He's doing a relational one, a familial one, to bring us into his family, to make us his children. That's the, the vision that Paul wants him to see in the context of the legal. And he says, there's nothing you can do. And so this transforms us to, from orphan slaves to free children of the Most High. And as we come to this section here, there's a shift, right? There's a shift. There's been this argumentation up to this point. We have adoption being the high point. And then there's a shift as Paul really appeals to them. He says, you know, you didn't know God. He addresses them as brothers. He's asking questions. It becomes more of a practical and a relational kind of appeal to them. He wants them to see this in this personal section to draw them and to help them to understand what his desire for them and indeed what the, the intention of the gospel. As we look at this text, indeed the, the letter as a whole, but especially this, through the lens of verse 19, we can learn what the gospel is in practical terms. And this is what I want us to see as I've kind of worked through this text this, later through the last week or two, that Paul's hope, his desire for them is that they would be changed, that they would be formed in the very image of Christ, that there would be transformation that takes place in their lives. And so the question we want to ask is, what does justification, what does adoption produce? What does it accomplish? Those are doctrinal categories, okay? Justification and adoption, and they describe a new status that the Christian has before God. But the question is, and he wants to answer here, is what does it produce? What does it accomplish, practically speaking? Kind of where the rubber meets the road, what does it accomplish in a person's life? And that is formation of Christ in their lives. The result practically is that there's a transformation, there's a, a real change. That the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. It is much more than that, but it is essentially this power to actually change us. And in verse 19, we see this imagery that Paul uses. And he uses the imagery of childbearing. And, and really in two different ways, there's two different subjects here. One is himself and the other is them. And at this point that I might talk about my experience with childbearing. Because I've seen three children by my wife, but I'm not going to talk about that because I really don't know what it means to bear a child. But Paul is using that imagery to talk about what it means to bear them. And he says, first of all, he says, I am now, as I await and I see what happens in your lives in response to my letter, I'm in the anguish of childbirth again. That the, the pain that he has in his life is like bearing a child, or in this case, there's a spiritual bearing that's going on. There's anguish, and it's like having that child a second time. It's the same pain, it seems unnecessary to do this again, but he says, I'm going through it again for your sake. And so he uses this imagery because of his love for them. But then he switches the imagery until Christ is formed in you. And again, this, this labor, this, this uh, childbearing imagery, he says, now they're the pregnant ones, right? He's wanting to deliver them as those who carry Christ until Christ is formed. And that's biological reproductive language there that Christ is formed in them in an embryonic form that he grows and they take on the shape and the form of him. And that, that shape and form is, is understood and lived out and through the gospel that he preaches to them and they're to grow to become spiritually like him. So the simple question for us is what happens 
when we are justified, what happens when we're redeemed, what happens when we be, are adopted as, as his sons. What does it mean to experience that reality? It means that there's something real that changes. Our status changes in our relationship with him. There's a doctrinal change that shifts, and we know that's true, but there's also something real that will evidence itself, that can't not evidence itself in our lives being transformed and being formed into the very image of God. And if I could put it like this and use this analogy of electricity and, and, and light, I don't know much about that, but I know enough to know when I flip a light switch that something happens to the room, that there's a bunch of theory that, that goes into that one must understand and a power source that must be present for lights to come on. But in the Christian's life, when the light comes on, when the reality and the status of our position being justified and being adopted into the, as a child of God, when it flips on in our lives, there's a transformation that takes place. We see things differently. All of a sudden, there's a newness. There's a, a change that's there, and it's real in our lives. It's not just about ideas. It's not just about theories. It's not just about doctrines, if I can use that. It's theology turned into doxology. It's this idea of doctrine that's turned into practice and transformation that is real, that is there. And Paul wants them to get that. He goes, there needs to be this taking place in your life. So the question is, how is the gospel forms Christ in us? How does the gospel do this? There's four points. I'm going to do two, look at two this week and then two next week. Aspects of the gospel that bring about this formation, that bring about this change in our lives. And now, mind you, it's not just change in our thinking, it's a change in our lives and the way that we live. I'm going to use this phrase the gospel is the power of God to transform or to form Christ in us in each of the cases. So, first of all, the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. I want to emphasize here that, that Paul does for us, and he says it's the power of God. It's what God has accomplished. It's what he has done in the context of people who are saying, no, 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 you need to add something back in. Yeah, it's Christ plus these things you must do. It's these regulations. It's strict adherence to these rituals, to these celebrations, to circumcision. You need to add those things back in. He says, no, this is something that God alone must accomplish. It's not something that you can do. The emphasis on God on the gospel that Paul preached is that God is the primary knower. He's the primary initiator. He's the primary former or transformer in our lives. And in verse 8, you see here, he writes to them formally, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature were not God. You didn't know him. You were enslaved to other gods. You didn't know what it meant to be known to know him. But then he goes on. But now in this transformation, as you've understood the gospel, he says, you have come to know God have a relationship with him, or rather to be known by God. And it's a funny kind of language in there, right? He says, now that you've come to know him, or rather to be known by him. And as, now as Paul's saying, no, you can't know God, it's rather to be known by him. Well, no, it's a rhetorical device. He says, once you need to understand something. The primary point here is that God is the primary knower. That God is the one who knows you. That God is the one who has reached down and reached into your life. He is the one that is initiated in your life. It's not about the knowledge that you have, although that's real, although that will grow, although that will produce a kind of awareness of who God is. But it's about him first knowing us, that he is the primary 
knower in our lives. See, it's not that we found God, right? It's that he has found us. It's not that we know about him. It's that he knows us is what we rest in. It's what we look to. And Paul says, don't miss this. Yes, you will know something about God, but rather what you root your chain, your life change in this formation of Christ in is in the fact that he knows you this primary knower. And again, what Paul is writing here, the language itself, the word is gnosis. He's writing against kind of a Gnostic idea that what's most important is certain kind of knowledge that you would have. And if you had that knowledge, if you had it, you would put yourself above others, that there's be kind of division between you and others. He says, no, it's not about what you know. It's about the God that knows you. And this, this idea is also more than just about data, about pure kind of information that you would have. It's about ultimately it's relational. It's intimate knowledge. It's an experiential kind of thing to know God and to be known by him. And again, we know that right in relationships, it's possible to know about somebody. It's even more to know someone, to be in a relationship with them, to experience that relationship. And of course, any relationship that we're in is transformative to us, brings about change in our lives. You can't be in a relationship with someone without some sort of change taking place in and through that relationships. They are formative in that way. If you had the privilege of being at J.D. and Emily's dinner reception last night, they talked about the family of grace and how it was so instrumental in changing them and forming them into who they were and who they would become. So relationships change. When my wife and I first met, when Kelly and I met, we on our very first date, we, we, we still laugh about this. There was kind of a condition that I had, and my condition was I had no sense of fashion whatsoever. No, it was awful looking back. You know, I still don't know a heck of a lot about it, but, but I didn't at all. And to give you a little taste of my sense of fashion, on our very first date, we were going out to a, uh, to a, a water park. And we were, going, we were driving a little ways. And so I, I, what I did was I, I thought I'd buy a, a new pair of shorts, you know. So I went, went and bought a new pair of shorts. And just to give you an idea of what they were, they were polyester um, spangin coaching shorts of kind of a putrid puke color. And I, and I was like, yeah, I'm ready for my date. You know, I've got my, my coaching shorts on. I had a, a blue tank top and we were, we were going. And, of course, my wife saw this, right? And over the course of, you could actually look at the photographs of my transformation of my wardrobe early on. She got to work in our relationship to change how I dressed. Now, thankfully, the course of our years, much more has changed in that relationship in the sense, not just wardrobe, transformation by being in a relationship with her. That there's been a formation that's taken place being married to her and is in all relationships. And if it's, that's true with people. How much more is that true in a relationship with God? To be known by him is to be formed by him. It's to be changed by him. It's a a lifetime process that he steps into our lives. It's not just about knowing data. It's about actually knowing him. It's about actually being in a relationship with him and being changed by him. And Paul writes to them, he says, it's the power of God and his work. The fact that he knows you. And it's possible for you to know him. And in this intimate relational, the lights come on and all of a sudden your life is transformed. You see, it's not possible to be justified. It's not possible to be adopted and not experience the reality of that. But now here's the challenge for us, right? Here's the challenge. You say then that's great and yeah, the others change and yes, I want to know him. 
But again, day in and day out, it's so hard to go, do I really know God? I struggle with certain days to go, many days to go, do I even really know him as I look at my own life, I look at my own struggles, I go, do I really know him? What does it mean to know God, transcendent being other than me, beyond me, holy, righteous? I can't even grasp that. I struggle even to believe. I struggle even to believe that I can know him. And right, it's those moments of despair where we go, I don't know if it's possible. It's in those moments and those points in time that we remember it's about him, about his ability to know us, not our ability to know him. He will bring us to a point of knowing him incrementally, but we can rest right here and now, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter what struggle, faithfulness, unbelief, chronic sin and temptation, that he knows us, that he is at work in our lives, that he has called us to be his children and we can rest right there as the Psalm 46 says to be still and know that he's there, that he knows me, that he's about a work in my life. I can rest. And so we can be secure, not that I know him, but that he knows me. But at the same time, the, the opportunity to know him is seen in and through a real relationship with him. As the previous section talked about adoption And this cry of Abba, Father, that we have the privilege of crying out to him, of praying to him, of going before him and trusting that as we do that, that he will open our eyes, the lights will come on in our lives, that we will know him. And in and through that knowledge, there will be transformation that takes place, that he, Christ himself, will be formed in our lives at his time, at his place, in his way, incrementally in the way that he would want we can have a great hope that that and that our efforts, that our involvement will do that. And so the gospel is the power of God himself, God primarily to form Christ in us. And Paul just says, don't miss this. Other people are coming and saying, well, you need to do these things. And, and then this will bring about this. No, 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 no. The minute you begin to add to that, something that you can do will be the minute that you begin to be enslaved to the thing that doesn't bring change. It's based upon something else. And so the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. Second point I'm going to emphasize here. I'm trying to nuance this. I'm not very good at this sometimes. I was trying to come up with points. I want to emphasize the power of God in our lives to form Christ in us. Paul says to them in verse 9, he says, But now that you've come to know God, or rather are known by God, how can you turn back again? to those weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. He compares, right? He contrasts the power of God to form Christ and their attempts to form something in their own lives. And he says, your ability to change your standing at all before God is weak and worthless. It must be his power to bring that that formation of Christ, to bring that transformation in your lives. How can you turn back again to those weak and worthless elementary principles again? Now, this is what's happening in this text. There's two people he's speaking to. He's addressed one of the Jews, and he has said the elementary principles of the law, essentially, is that the law can't change your standing before God. All it does is reveal the standing that you have, and that's one is being sinful. It says that if you trust in it as a principle, it's not going to save you. It can't deliver you from sin. All it can do is reveal sin. So if you trust in it, it can't do anything for you. The same thing, at the same time, he's talking to the Gentiles. Many of them have come out of pagan religions who have worshipped literal, physical idols in front of them, before them, idols that represented 
gods that they would worship, things that they wanted in the real world around them, you know, sun, moon, stars, growth, produce, fertility, power, you name it, there was a God that represented one of those aspects, and they worshiped that God to get that God, and that, that God, the, the, what that God offers to them. And as Paul writes to them, he says, you have left those behind. Now, what you can't do is go back to trusting in something else besides Christ. That both of these, to trust in the law or to trust in these things, is really the same thing. The phrase elementary principles of the world is a difficult phrase to translate, but what it means essentially is anything that you are trusting in apart from Christ. Anything else that you want, that you look to, to get, have it give to you what you want, what you desire. To trust in anything else. And that thing will, in the end, enslave you. That will become your God. And when Paul, as he is writing to them about this, he wants them to see you've already been delivered from these gods. And now you're being led back by the, these, these Judaizers, these who would lead you back to that, to trust in works that you would do, to be trusting in these regulations that they would bring to the table. Now, it's important to know here, they're not being tempted necessarily to leave Christ behind. What they're doing is they're seeking to improve upon Christ by adding something to him, to improve upon his work. And, of course, we know that any attempt to improve upon Christ is, is offensive to his work. It nullifies his work and undermines it and ultimately becomes a form of slavery that doesn't lead to certainly a real relationship with God his Father. And nor does it bring about any kind of change or transformation in a person's life. Only the gospel does that. And as Paul writes them, he says, these things that you would be trusting in, they're weak and worthless. Only the power of God can accomplish this in your lives. And he goes on to say in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And he's getting at, again, these religious observances, these ceremonies that would become mandated, be a part of that. You're adding these things. Of course, circumcision being the primary one that would be necessary for them. You're trusting in them. You've left the worship of these idols of pagan gods and you're moving back to a self-made religion a self-regulated religion, morality that you've made up, you've taken the law and instituted for yourself in a way that it wasn't meant to be used or applied in your own lives. But these are weak and worthless things. And again, those are practical words, right? They're weak. You can't accomplish what you want. It's, it's powerless to accomplish anything. Essentially, it's like a, taking a squirt gun to a, a house on fire. It doesn't do any good whatsoever they're worthless. There's no value there that they bring these principles, these things that you would do, that you would seek to bring about yourselves. And the question is, these are weak and worthless to do what? A couple things I think are helpful for us. We think about transformation, the power of God. One, they're weak and worthless to affect any change in our standing before God. They're weak and worthless to affect any change in our position before God, to be loved any more or less, to be accepted any more or less, to be a child of God any more or less. He says, no, you can't do that. It's weak and worthless because it doesn't change your status before him. When I owe to the minute you think you can do that, you miss the gospel. You miss its power. And you're only enslaving yourself to your own man-made religion. So it's weak and worthless to affect any change or position before God. But secondly, I think it's, it doesn't affect any real change in Christ being formed in us. It doesn't bring about any real change in your life. The minute you manufacture something and press it in upon you or somebody else, 
regulates that for you, it doesn't have the ability to change you. Only the power of God internally has the ability to change. Now, be careful here. What I'm not saying is that we have a a role to play or that there's effort to be expended on our part. But what I am saying is that any scheme that we have devised, that we have made up, that man has regulated and imposed upon us in an attempt to be conformed to this image will in the end be weak and worthless. It will not do any good to us. It will not change us in the way that we ultimately need to be changed. Paul addresses this in a little different angle. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 is, as Paul writes, really in the context of kind of an ascetic mentality. Again, regulations and rules has been imposed. And, and you're gonna, you will see this, this as he writes to them. The gospel in verse 21 of chapter 2 of, of Colossians, he writes, and the, again, the context here, he's talking about the, again, the, these um, elementary principles or spirits of the world that relate to the same self effort. He says, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these regulations, referring to things that are perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings in verse 23. These, these regulations indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's a harsh treatment to the body, severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping indulgence in the flesh. What he says, these things that are imposed, the things that the Galatians were part of, things that we manufacture to bring about change, ultimately will not change us. They are weak and worthless to bring about change and transformation in our lives. You see, what they had done is they had, they had sought, okay, I can improve upon Christ. They had taken the gospel and they would manufactured in their own making. They've added things to it, these rituals. You need to do these things to see change. And Paul says, no, it's about the power of God. Anything you accomplish, attempt to do on your own, your own regulation of your own morality will only bring about a bondage to yourself and will not really change you. It will only create a framework in which you think you're changed, but you're not. And you look around and you compare yourself to others as opposed to comparing yourself to Christ. It doesn't change. They had exchanged their sonship, living in the freedom of being God's child for slavery of something else. And saw the basis of their standing before God and the basis of their transformation upon what they would do and what they would accomplish. And so what Paul wants them to see is this. Christ will be formed in you only by his power, only what he will do. You see, to live as a child of God, to live freely and to realize, okay, he's a work in my life. I don't have to create these means. He's given us these means in our lives to do that. It requires a faith, okay, that trusting in myself, it's greater than trusting in myself. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. John Wesley, the evangelist and theologian, His story is really quite fascinating. As you look at him, he lived a very religious, devout, rigorous Christian life that was governed by many regulations that he himself imposed upon himself. But there was a number of years that he lived like that before he was even converted. And he came to understand there's a difference between living as a slave, as a servant, in which I maintain my own keep, and living as a son in this, he wrote. In describing this disciplined religious life prior to his conversion, he wrote, I had before the faith of a servant, 
though not that of a son. I had the faith of a servant, which is less faith, right? Because I think I can accomplish something, though not of a son, to rest in the power of God to bring this about. See, the problem is this, is that we think the changes that need to take place in us through our categories are things that we can bring about. I just need to try harder. I just need to work harder at this. And if I do that, to not sin and to do right, then change will take place. But you see, the problem is the the transformation is a much deeper kind of thing. C.S. Lewis describes this transformation in this way to give us eyes to see what needs to take place. Not just mere improvement, but transformation from mere Christianity, he writes. For mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we can we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they're really going to be wings. And it may even give a kind of awkward appearance. And you see what he's saying there. We think we need to jump higher, run faster, run farther. But what God says, no, 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 no. My plans for you, my intentions for you are not just to take a little bit of what you've done and improve it. My intentions for you are to completely transform you and to give you wings in C.S. Lewis's imagery. You're going to be given a capacity that you never had before. And it must be supernatural. And this capacity must come alone from the very power of God to enable us not just to jump higher and run faster, not just to be more moral, okay, but to truly love righteousness, to truly be compassionate, to truly look at others and want their best to truly in our lives, at our core, at our hearts, to be transformed. And that's what Paul is talking about. This power is necessary because anything that we might bring to the table will only change us according to our standards. It will only change us according to what we see, our own framework, our own self-legislated kind of morality or the morality of the, the world or the culture around us. And so what Paul wants him to see is you can't do this that has to be God's power to produce this in you in a supernatural way to form Christ. The gospel is the power of God to transform us, to form Christ, us in the image of Christ. And so what do they need to understand on the most fundamental level to see Christ form in them? First, it must be God doing the work. It must be him and his work in their lives as they know him and most of all as he knows them and to rest in that reality but secondly, that it's his power because God's intentions are much greater and more profound than anything that we could imagine. It must be his power that the foundational building block for the Christian of the gospel in order for us to be formed is that this is his work that he will do and that we have a role to play. We'll talk more about that next week. Conclude with the story. A number of years ago, 
I, uh, I had a, a conversation. This was, I was in North Dakota at the time. I still remember. Uh, it was cold there, too. And I was on staff with Campus Crusade. And I'd run across an individual who was in, in the union, student union there. And he was kind of a self-proclaimed prophet evangelist. And, you know, hey, let's talk. He'd love to get to know you a little bit. And he was kind of traveling through town. And he was kind of doing some work on campus. So that's great. We sat and talked for a while. And it wasn't too long in our conversation where he... He let me know this. It was pretty clear. He said, I haven't sinned for 13 years. And how do you respond to that, right? It's like, wow, cool. (laughs) Great. Uh, Now, I didn't know the guy very well. I can't. Heck, I don't don't know. (laughs) I didn't necessarily take him to be an insincere kind of guy. I don't think he was lying necessarily, not intending to lie. I think he really kind of thought he'd lived for 13 years and really hadn't sinned. And that's really what he believed. And we talked a little while and, I, you know, we couldn't get anywhere in a conversation because a guy who says I've been sinned in 13 years has created categories, right? An understanding with sin that's so kind of narrow and manageable that he can do that. A guy that says, yeah, I, I can do this thing. I don't. I don't have to do those things. And, and yet you realize when a person begins to create those categories and it's a manageable system now that we can live in, I can create these rules and regulations and as long as I do them, right, I'm not sinning. And so the goal then becomes to not sin. And again, they so reduce down what Christ wants to do in our lives because it becomes to, to not sinning. That's not the point. Don't we understand? The goal ultimately for the Christian is just not to not sin. That's a fine thing. But God says, that's, that's fine. But let me tell you, your sin has been dealt with. My vision for you is just to not, to not sin. Can I say that in that double negative? My vision for you is that you would actually take on the very person of Christ. That you would be formed in you. Not just looking at sin in categories that you have, but looking at sin at categories... I have. And only then does the gospel grow. Only then does the gospel expand and become large enough when we realize our need for God and our need for his power to transform us in his life. So the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. And that allows us to navigate between those two ditches of despair and over-optimistic Nature. It allows us to realize that as the lights come on, there's a real understanding of what it means to know him. That over the course of our lives, whether I wake up in the morning, I find the same guy staring back at me in the, in the mirror or not, that there's change taking place that I can entrust myself to. Next week, we'll continue to, to discuss that and, and look at the role that the community has in uh, worship. So let me pray. Father, um, We just need you to help us see straight, to open our eyes. Please forgive us for the ways that we've tried to make sin manageable in our own lives and and, and then to to kind of legislate that through regulations that would prevent us from seeing even our own sin. Forgive us. Prevent us from that. Indeed, would you, by the knowledge of who you are and your knowledge of us, by the power that's present in and through Christ and and the gospel, would you form in each one of us, Christ. Give us hope to move forward, hope to work hard by your power, hope to entrust ourselves to you 
even in the midst of our sin and our struggles and, and hope to encourage each other to keep walking, keep hoping, keep trusting that you are, you are and will conform us. You are growing those wings on us so that we cannot just run harder and faster, but truly be given abilities and the apparatus to, to honor you and do things for you that we could never have done before. Would you do that in our lives? We're so grateful for our community, and we ask, Father, I think of several different situations. Certainly pray for Steve and Emma. Father, continue to be with her as they, she comes off the medication that, that um, well, Asa would be where he needs to be and, and that you would help grow and develop him. I think of this last week and the, the weddings between Jed and Anna and between J.D. and Emily yesterday and bless their marriage, their relationship. A great privilege as a body to be a part of both of them. And Father, I pray for Caleb Stiegel. Think about him as taking now the bench on the appellate court and his role as a judge. Would you use him as your person there to certainly to exact justice and, and goodness and live that out there that others would see the greatness of you and, and your gospel and work in his life. Continue to grow us as your people to rest in you. Form us in the image of Christ so that you would put on display you to a world that desperately needs to see and hear and know that you're real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.